if you if someone asks you to do something and you don't know how to do it just say yes and go find out afterwards Hello and welcome to another edition of Expedition Business, where we talk to inspiring entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of their business journey and how on earth they manage to keep the flame of business adventure burning. My name is Christelle Rosley Fenton. I have the honor of talking to Simone Musgrave, founder of Musgrave Gin today. But before I introduce Simone to you, I would like to remind you to subscribe, comment and share this podcast with as many of your friends and family as possible. Without your help, we cannot continue to share the amazing stories of our South African entrepreneurs, such as Simone. Simone Musgrave is the founder of Musgrave Crafted Spirits, home to Musgrave Craft Gin. She has a trained eye for spotting trends and has been in charge of innovation and strategy throughout her career, traveling the globe to scout ideas, analyzing and applying trends, and predicting trends and product directions. Simone, welcome to Expedition Business. Thank you very much. And yeah, thank you for having me. Sounds like a, a, a worthwhile conversation to have. Africa at the moment. Absolutely, absolutely. We definitely do need good news and that is what Expedition Business is all about. And yeah, sharing all these amazing stories. But speaking of stories, you're a big believer from what I can gather that every brand should have a great story. And from what I see, the story of Musgrave Gin started way back in 1949 when your grandfather left Plymouth en route to Africa. How did that story got into the Musgrave Gin story? Yes, yeah, so it's it's really a brand, our, our sort of family story and my my African story and, and my father's is something that I've always thought is worth telling. And and I just never sort of had a platform to, to do that. My grandfather had written this book just before he died of all his stories of 30 years adventuring in Africa and so it was so rich uh, of story that I thought well there's there's got to be a brand sitting in here so when I started Musgrave Gin um, I could think of no better name for the brand and a story because as we know gin is all about the botanicals and where they come from and so this was a, a story of of origin and so it really st started to as I climbed more and more into the story it, it sort of the pro product so it was really a, a, a no-brainer to use my own personal story, of which I can tell better than anyone. And your surname, you've said, also worked pretty well with the whole name of your new gin. Correct. Yes, and I, you know, I, when I started it, I wanted to speak about the choice of botanicals. And a botanical story in gin is... Is, is really from source. So, you know, you get the Feinbos gins that talk about all the plants that come from different places in the Cape. And and across the world, in the UK, it's often Scottish, Heather, or in Ireland, it's specific botanicals. For me, it was 
an African story and I'm South African and I wanted to reflect the flavors of Africa. And this was the perfect story to, to go and search for those botanicals. So the story really is everywhere my grandfather lived, which started on him coming to Africa on a boat, on a ship for three months and um, deciding to be a missionary in Africa. And he was 19 years old and he, he really didn't want to stay in the UK. His choices were to continue to be a carpenter or to go on this adventure. He had the choice of India and and Africa, and he was religious, and, and the church offered these adventures. So he decided to come to Africa, and for 30 years, two, uh, he brought my father, who was nine months old, also very brave, to, to go on a ship to Africa with a small baby. My grandmother was a nurse, and they decided to, to go into the do- deepest, darkest Kenya and Tanzania and, and, mission, and start a mission center. So the next 30 years saw him moving around two more children that he had uh, in Africa and, and this body of stories that we eventually we got him to write down of all the different places. So I tracked those and looked at what are the botanicals that are, are in these places. And that was my gin story. Sure, sure. And have you published these stories of where the botanicals come from for each brand? We talk, we talk about some of the key botanicals and um, we haven't, my grandfather's book was sort of published for the church and the family, I guess. But um, the the story of our botanicals, our, our key ones, we talk, uh, you know, the ones that give that flavor as you open the bottle, as you take your first sip, we talk about them quite a lot in our, in our brand story. Well, it makes yeah drinking your gin even more worthwhile apart from the taste um, <laughs> the story makes it extra extra special but Simone something that you've mentioned your grandfather had the choice of being a carpenter or going on yeah. an adventure in Africa and it almost lets me think of when we are especially in a corporate situation like you've been in corporate for quite some time um, mm-hmm. We have choices and um, taking that leap of faith into entrepreneurship can change your life completely. Um, and yeah. I think that's what's happened for you pretty much. You could have stayed in corporate. Absolutely. Well, I could have stayed in corporate, but I, th- I felt I had done my time. I was also going to get retrenched and I really couldn't imagine sort of finding another company to make my way in and it was just you know I was leading innovation in that in the business and the business I was in was quite a groundbreaker in the innovation journey and there wasn't really going to be that that job that same job available anywhere else so I also wanted to choose my own freedom I I wanted to determine when I when I go on holiday I wanted to control my own financial uh, future and so when this opportunity came round and I call my retrenchment an opportunity, I thought I'd jump out and luckily I found something to jump onto. Mm-hmm. And what a journey it has been since then. But something that interests me somewhere along the line, I've read that you were also a single mother at the time when you got retrenched. How did that influence your journey? Well. You know, I was a sole breadwinner. Um, I was a single mom. I'd always had jobs that allowed me to spend time with my children. 
and the the journey really was uh, was I was very lucky along my work my corporate journey in that I had people who who knew that I had to fetch kids at half past three and and didn't control every move I made and my fear of going into another company was I wouldn't have that and I really wanted to be a present mother and mm. also to my two daughters so so I also grew up with an uh, entrepreneurial family my father's had his own businesses his whole life and it was just something we knew that this flexibility is what I wanted so mm -hmm. I took the step um, I took the step with was really because I, I it wasn't that conscious I, I really had started Musgrave as a sideline while I was waiting to be retrenched it took mm -hmm. them 18 months me and by then I'd already launched uh, we launched our original and, of course, the first Musgrave Pink, which is the first pink in South Africa. And so by the time I got retrenched, I actually was selling about 5,000 bottles a month. And I was able to take a small salary. I also had a package that I'd stuck in there and waited for. So I was quite lucky in that I, I already had proved concept while I was getting a salary. And and we were sort of on the, and I really needed to leave because I was moonlighting and doing gin as a sideline, almost full-time operation. Yeah, so, you know, I was moonlighting during the 18 months. They were, you know, corporate takes a long time to do anything and they were faffing around trying to decide how and when. And, and so in those 18 months, I built a business. And so by the time I finally got retrenched, my business was quite on the road and it was a crazy time in fact we'd launched our second gin um the first pink in south africa and so it was it was easy for me to jump straight in and and you know i was taking a small salary i had a backup retrenchment plan and so so it, it happened quite seamlessly which which is some advice i often give is you know if you can start a sideline that becomes a business and keep the salary to keep you safe in the beginning it's quite a nice a safety net mm, mm. that was actually my next question what would be your advice for people in similar situations but yeah it does sound like sound advice yeah and i think also that retrenchment is often an opportunity you know it seems so devastating when when it happens and it's scary but the the what it does give you is a kickstart into possibly your next thing mm. uh whether that's mm find another job and, and jumping up the ladder or is or starting your own business so it's it is it can be an opportunity and and to see it like that is perhaps more uh, it, it's more positive than you know panicking mm, mm, absolutely something else that interests me and it sort of just happened um, that we realized this morning that you are a single mother as well as with all our other female um, entrepreneurs that we've interviewed so far. <laughs> we thought it was quite funny. Does, do you think that it makes a difference in your entrepreneurial decisions that you take if you are under pressure being a single mother? Um, I don't know if it makes any difference in my decisions. I, I mean, having to earn, you know, not all single mothers are sole breadwinners either. So um, for me, it was essential that I made it work because that was how I had to pay and support them. So um, I think that it didn't really influence my decisions so much um, as just knowing I've got to bring home the bacon and mm. get on with it. Mm. Yeah. And don't have a second option to fall back on. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. 
yeah, I think that does make quite a big difference. Um, obviously, running a business isn't just sunshine and roses. Um, how do you get through your bad days when things aren't going the way it should be going? Or don't you get the bad days? Oh, no, there's a lot of bad days. And um, I think the... Um, I think how I get through it is often a, a yoga or exercise or in Cape Town, I'm on the mountain. If I can, if, you know, it gives me the space. I like to walk on my own on the mountain, just think um, and and just sort of get into nature. I think that's for me the, the best way is just get away from the desk, get away from the problem for a bit, think about it. Um, I'm a very sociable person, you know, phone up a friend, chat it through, but I think also not to dwell on on certain things. There's stuff that I, is in my control, and there's stuff that isn't. And I I try and I really try and focus on what I can change and what I can't. So there are days that you just, and especially in the alcohol industry, you just get really cut full of all the um, red tape. And you know, it's quite a male industry. It's quite gritty. It's it's not easy to uh to convince people that this female with a pink gin is going to make you know make change your life um but there's there's only so much i can do and all i can do is go back and do the things i do best and and let the other things fall into place around me okay and what would you describe being the things that you do best um i think that i innovate and create ideas and that's always been the the skill that I love doing and the jobs that I've had have always been around ideas. And I really do think I have an insight into bringing the customer an, a product that excites them and that tells a story and, and is a conversation piece. And whatever we've done has done that. So I'm not great at finances. I can tell you that right now. I'm not great <laughs> I can do logistics, but I don't like it. Um, I'm not a maker of much. You know, I'm not a distiller. I, I can put together the idea of a product, but I need someone to make it. But I can create those ideas and take them to the people to, to put together. In the same way, I need a good accountant around me. Um, I need a good distiller. And those are all pieces of the entrepreneurship puzzle that you, you, you need to create and, and put together. So, so I'm a great project manager, and I bring ideas into that into that mix that um, I can make happen. Mm-hmm. So you say you still use distillers. You don't do your own distilling. We've always my model was always to contract distill, and that is because I'm not a distiller. To build a distillery is huge investment, and obviously skill, mm. and that's really where I wanted to be. I wanted to create a brand, a luxury mm. brand. And I started in gin, but I always said we're not only gin and we ended up getting involved in brandy as well. Mm. And that's really how I envisioned the business. And um, I, I worked for factories that produced all the Woolworths food in my career. And that's sort of the same model, right? It's yes. uh, making the product. And so that was, that was sort of where I came from. I had a little venture into a baby food business uh, at one stage, which I sold to Purity Baby Food. And there I had my own factory. And one gets quite bogged down in the running of the factory. And the marketing is quite hard to pull yourself away to focus on. And Mm. so I really 
especially this time around, make sure that the marketing, the brand is what I was building because essentially at the end of the day, the brand is what people want. Um, I always had a vision to sell the business and a brand is what people buy. Mm. So that's why the, um, the distilling for me or have building another factory wasn't really attractive. Mm. That's also one of the reasons why you didn't need a license right at the beginning. At the beginning, I didn't really because I wasn't touching the product. It was being made by a distillery. It was being distributed by uh, distribution agents. And all we were doing was, was talking about it. Mm -hmm. And so we weren't even warehousing at that stage. Obviously, when we started to warehouse and distribute ourselves, we, we then did. But it, it allowed, again, a lot of the red tape to not come into play in the early days. Mm. Mm. But now you pretty much bogged down with red tape from time to time. Yes. Uh, well, so I've moved into, I've sold Musgrave um, to a big liquor business um, only two two months ago. And so I've got no red tape now. But um, <laughs> I've had my time of a lot of red tape and a lot of, you know, fighting with SARS on excise duties. Uh, COVID obviously put another sp spanner in the works. Um, and then, you know, the licensing in this country is designed to make it difficult for you. So, and every year you've got to renew. So it's complicated, but mm. we were, we did it. We, we managed, um, but we were at a stage where we had the resources and people employed to be able to help with that. I wasn't coping with this on my own. Mm. Which does help, especially if it's something yeah. you don't like. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Definitely. Um, model that I want to follow there. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, so right now you are on a brand new path. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, what you've got in mind going forward? Sure. So I'd always built Musgrave to sell the brand. I wanted to build it and sell it in five years. And at, on, in 2019, we were talking to various big companies about buying Musgrave. We were at the peak of our turnover. And, and then COVID took us down. Um, luckily, Musgrave was such a strong brand. Our business model that we didn't have a factory and we didn't have all these overheads was a, a huge advantage to us. And we were really strong in the consumer's mind. Mm. So so we, I was, I was hoping to sell Musgrave on the fifth year, which was what I set out to do, but that happened. We had to wait till COVID sort of ended and then we, we, create, we made, made a deal. So the deal went through the end of June to a company called Halewood who bought Musgrave as part of their brand mix. And the the idea there was really that, you know, in fact, I made the right decision because the liquor industry post-COVID had become incredibly difficult to manage. Plus the gin trend had settled. Um, there were so many players in the gin market, uh, over 500 products. And it was really just a, you know, a bit of a dogfight. Um, mm. Although must very strong on the shelf, we were under price pressure. The price to the consumer had changed. We had to stay under four hundred rand, or, you know, not survive. Um, but, but along the journey, we knew that was always coming. So that is why I always said that you know this gin trend, this big thing, is not going to last forever. And, and so. That was my decision to sell. Um, so here I am now. Uh, I don't own Musgrave at all. And someone else is looking after my third child. So going forward, what 
is your big mountains, metaphorical mountains, that you still want to climb within the next three to five years? Yeah, a lot of people ask, what am I going to do now? Um, there's a couple of things that have come up, which I didn't ask for. I was meant to have my year off. And, of course, that that uh, was, you know, maybe it's something that I think I'll enjoy. But, in fact, I, I, I'm already, you know, got itchy feet and itchy hands to do something. Mm-hmm. I'm looking of um, businesses to invest in and I always want to stay in the luxury space um, I've also got involved with a very very high end whiskey business which again wasn't on my radar but the opportunity came to me to take over management of a of a luxury cognac and, and whiskey business uh, sort of 40,000 rand a bottle 5,000 rand a bottle type of business wow and um, I'm probably going to end up working with them full-time next year, but we're on a bit of a conversation at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and that really excites me because it's a different category. So aged spirits, you know, gin is not aged. You can mm. make it in 16 hours. Think of keeping casks for 10, 20 years, 30 years. The pricing is different. The, the, the way it's traded is different. The, everything is different different so it's quite exciting to learn something new um and it's a, a luxury market that is beyond south africa um in into markets that are the, the sort of luxury high highest end of, of the world mm-hmm. so that's quite interesting and i guess i'll dip my fingers into a little bit of brand consulting i'm working with a, a mohair yarn business which you may say what do i know about that but uh-huh. brand <laughs> And this is a great little South African brand that is 82% export. Um, we're the biggest producers of mohair in South Africa. She's got a great brand. But again, like most entrepreneurs with big factories, she has no time for the marketing side of it. So assisting there with a, with a brand strategy. And, and this, it's no different from gin to yarn to any other products. It's all the same approach. The same, same principles ap- apply. Mm. So I'm working brands that I've, I'm attracted to, that I like, the people I like, and that that is makes me happy. And I, I guess the biggest thing for me is everything I do now must be, must be, give me joy, and I must enjoy it, and mm. I must add value. Mm. So, although I loved doing what I did with Musgrave, the liquor industry is very tough, and being a woman in that is also quite an interesting space. Do you think being a woman in business is only tough in the liquor industry or do you find that it's across all industries a bit of a challenge? I can't really speak for other other industries really. I, I know uh, in the I know the food industry, uh, which is a little bit friendlier to women because there are a lot of women in that category. Mm-hmm. So liquor industry, there's very few women. So and it's a very gritty, you're dealing with retail buyers. They all, I think there's, I've only accounted one who's a buyer in the retail liquor space, who's a woman. Um, you're dealing with bottle store owners. Uh, you're going into gritty stores. You've got distributors, all male. Mm. The only place you find women is in that marketing space. Mm. And so, so there's just less women. And, and it's a very cutthroat world. So I think industries that have those values attached to it are, are tough for women in South Africa. We have a very conservative uh, environment that, to play in. 
and and it and the industry is based on on bullying in my view um from the restaurant owners and small suppliers to the big liquor guys you know there there's a lot of bullying that goes on and and you know i think as a woman you you're always in the minority um i don't i don't suffer bullies very easily but mm-hmm. it can wear you down you know and day after day when you're having to always bring your strength is is tiring but i do get the impression that the bigger the challenge the more you get up to the challenge and um are never afraid of taking up any challenges yeah exactly i mean i you know i i really don't care what people think of me and my aim is to to be ethical to be honorable and how i deal in business and always be honest and always be true to my brand and if they don't like it that's not my problem and and so and if people don't like me in the way that i operate then oh, well then i just don't deal with you uh-huh. and so you know, if you if you just have a line in the sand of how you prepared to operate and what you prepared to do i'm not going to sell my product as much as i need the few cases to someone who's treating me badly i rather not sell that product to you and to learn to walk away from those environments and not compromise yourself mm-hmm. um because you need a sale that's based on a bullying relationship or on a threat and mm-hmm. and i think it takes courage to walk away from these these environments that don't serve you mm-hmm. what advice would you give to similar entrepreneurs who need to learn how to walk away I think listen to your listen to your gut instinct. Your gut instinct tells you very very quickly who you prepared to deal with and who you aren't. If it doesn't feel right, it's generally not. And you know, if someone pushes you to a price that you just can't maintain or you know you're not going to make money, just walk away. And just, you know, it's thank you very much, but it's not going to work for my business. So listen to your gut. Don't mm. listen to balance sheet always. Mm. You mentioned earlier that, um, and I did say that you don't sound like you're scared of challenges, but you did mention that it does wear you down from time to time. Um, is there any Done. other special advice that you can get give people to get out of that rut, to get out of the being um, bogged down situation? Um, you know, COVID for me was a really awful time. I, I'm not generally someone who gets overly stressed or anxious or, or, you know, or gives up. But COVID really, it was just like for two years, we could trade one day and three. And I had built this business um, with my blood, sweat and tears as a single mom. You know, I didn't ask the government for one thing. And... And so when I kept getting a punch in the face every time and I couldn't even take my own products that I'd worked so hard on and put it in my car or I'd get arrested. And so just every step of the way it was like we not you know we're not going to be there to support you. And so and I saw this you know passion business of mine that was doing so well just you know I retra- I had to retrench all my people you know and as I said one day in three for two years is what we could trade. And for me, there was no uh, data that backed that up. Mm. And, and so what I did in that environment, and my kids said to me, um, 
you know, mom, we, we don't know what to do with you anymore. You need to go and like de-stress some way. And I had boils growing up my skin and it was totally not me. Mm. And so I off off to the Cedarburg mountains and I stayed in a lodge for a few days and I went for walks and I just, I just said, there's nothing, the power's out of my hands. There's nothing I can do here. Let it go. Everyone across the country, as we all know, was selling bootlegging booze around, um, you know, and I saw my product being sold for thousands around in, in places that I didn't even know it appeared. Uh-huh. Um, and so I, I decided to let go of all of that mm. and, and just give up for a little couple of months and wait for the situation to come, come right because mm. it wasn't up to me. I think my advice is to, you know, again, what you can't control is, is just going to destroy you if you worry about it too much. It's to step away, let it pass, do what you can. So in the background, I started to, to work on developing what was our comeback strategy. And so I sat down and said, you know, when we come back, the consumer is going to be excited to buy a booze and we want our brand to be remembered as the one that they buy first when they can get into the bottle store. Mm. And so I developed a strategy on renovating some of our packaging, bringing a, a limited edition in and, and some excitement in the category. And so when they walked into that store and things were open, Musgrave was there answering their innovation, their excitement and their newness questions. Mm. And, and that is what I focused on. So I gave up trying to fight and I just um, took a deep breath and said, okay, what can I do? And so when we came back, we were ready to, to bring this, this whole new look to our original Musgrave and a whole new product um, to the market, as well as a couple of events and some excitement, um, some competitions on social media and anything that touched our consumer and said thank you for supporting us and thinking of us during this time well well that sounds like you can write a textbook marketing <laughs> textbook on this i am writing a book that's what okay. i am doing fantastic and when is this book going to be published uh, i don't know but i I'm, I'm in there i'm sort of three quarters of the way through and then some editing so so it's a next year journey probably some within the next year i will have publish that um okay. i also and, and do keynote addresses um to share my story so keeping busy and hopefully you know sharing the insights and and the the kind of journeys and the experiences i've had wow yeah i can imagine that the insights is quite exciting and worthwhile to listen to where about do you do all your keynotes only in the cape area or do you spread I'd it any, anywhere someone will pay me to go to i'll go anywhere <laughs> okay fantastic and i assume the ideal is if there's a mountain close by that you can walk out absolutely absolutely that's uh when i'm overseas and doing uh work there i i when i, I come back to cape town i'm always very happy to see that mountain um and it's so cliched everyone in cape town says that but i genuinely get on that mountain often okay Simone, we've spoken about metaphorical mountains that you still want to climb, but you've also said that in the um, next few years, you want to be more in the mountains physically. Is there any specific mountains that's on your radar that you want to hike out? Um, well, I've climbed Kilimanjaro. 
mm-hmm. uh, which I climbed just before my 40th birthday, which was something I didn't have, didn't plan to have in my bucket list, but came to me. I don't know if I'll go that high again, um, but I think you know there's uh, there's Mont Blanc in France that I'd really like to climb. Um, I've tried to climb the uh, Japanese um, Mount Fuji. Uh, just the weather was bad, so I couldn't do it. So those are probably two that I really would love to do, and and those are not as high and they they're totally doable. So with a bit of training behind me, but the older I get, I better get onto it. Uh-huh. It's, uh, it's <laughs> well, that's a good reason to um, get up and start hiking everything that you do want to hike. Absolutely. This time is unfortunately ticking that I know myself from personal experience. <laughs> Tell me, in mm-hmm. South Africa, is there any specific um, peaks that you still want to conquer? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I just, I really like to do Fish River Canyon and, you know, the, the Drakensberg. I haven't been that side for years. So, so I think to really just be able to enjoy uh, South Africa, there's so much to do and, and get to these places that, you know, bring reflection and bring quietness. Um, and those are the times that I get to think the best. Mm, mm. Absolutely. As long as you've got a journal with you to write down everything that you think of. Correct. Simone, if you could be 20 years old again, what would you change? Would you change anything? I don't know if I would change anything. You know, it's easy to look back on your life and say, you know, I should have done that. I don't have any regrets. I got married young. I got divorced young. But I had two amazing girls uh, from that that decision. And everything I've done has led me to this point. And we, every single life, everyone will go through that, where you there were some things you may not uh, choose to do again, but you did them, so you have to learn from them. I don't think that I would have studied anything different because you are who you are at that age. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I would have lived in any other countries, and and I'm really glad I had my children at 23 because, uh, sorry, 26 um, because I was quite young in those days. But now it's how my life has panned out. I have a lot of freedom and they are grown up and so I'm young enough to also be with them and do exciting things with them so you know those are the kind of decisions that you make and and in the end they are your journey um your journey is your own journey and I don't think that that your regrets uh well I don't have any regrets that I feel I need to go back and change I think we have to own our journeys and they're there for a reason to teach us what we needed to be taught so so for me it's if I was 20 again I don't think I'd give myself any better advice um, except maybe to take every opportunity instead of only the six you did take mm-hmm. but as you know, when you're young you think you've got your whole life so that's wasted on the youth and I have a 26-year-old daughter now and a 24-year-old daughter. And I can give them all the advice in the world, but they will make their own decisions too. Yes, and that's part of life. Although you would love them to follow your advice strictly. Absolutely. But, uh, 
you know, they need to, they only they know themselves better. So they need to follow their journey and live with their decisions too and take responsibility for those decisions. Mm-hmm. Have you encouraged them into an entrepreneurial world at all? I mean, I would, I would always say to them, you know, being an entrepreneur is, is gives you freedom and don't rule it out. But they have to feel that themselves. They, I also do believe, you know, I couldn't have started Musgrave without being in corporate in the, for those years. I, I, my network was built in corporate, my knowledge, my skills, my insights, my trend watching, everything. Everything positioned me to start Musgrave. Without that, I would never have been able to do it. And so I truly believe they need to spend time working for other people in a variety of businesses to see, to learn, to see, to to build skills, to build networks, to mm. learn how to work with other people. And and they're both in London doing that right now. Okay. You Speaking of London, you've mentioned earlier that you don't regret being in South Africa. Do you plan on staying in South Africa or are you also in the process of immigrating? No, I'm in South Africa. I I spent time, I bought a house in Greece and I spend time in France where my parents have a house and I my boyfriend lives in Mauritius at the moment, so we spend time there. But Africa's my home, Cape Town's my home. I'm building a new house actually, so I'm very much committed to South Africa. I like being able to travel. I've always loved travel. So so that's, uh, yeah, I think that's the best scenario. But uh, when I'm in Cape Town, I'm in South Africa, that's where I'm happiest. Mm. That's where I feel the most, I feel like I belong. Right next to the mountain. Correct. Correct. <laughs> okay, and how about reading? Do you have any interests there? Any books that you can recommend? Um, I am a, I am a, a non-fiction reader mostly. Um, I'm currently reading Shoe Dog. Okay. I've just started, so I, I believe that's brilliant. Um, I remember reading The Journey of Starbucks and being quite, uh, quite sort of impressed by, by his journey, and I learned a lot from that. Um, I've read a lot of books of, around innovation theory and design thinking, which is obviously really my field. Um, and and I really am interested in obviously adventure type um, t- literature, travel literature. So those are the kind of books I generally go to. And then I'll find a I'll find a a, a cheap novel on a holiday beach somewhere sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I think for me it's um, it's uh, I, I tend to I notice since I sold my business I'm going more to the novel space because my brain is a bit freer. Mm. But I always find you know that insight that lesson um and and so that i tend to head towards non-fiction style books mm. it's quite interesting that you mentioned shoe dog because that has been given to me last night and i was told i have to read it again and again and again <laughs> yeah so, so that's on my, that's on my list for the next week or so and um i also have heard such great things about it mm. You wouldn't be interested, seeing that you are interested in adventure, to go off into um, a clothing brand like the Nikes and the Solomons and everything else that's surrounded by adventure. 
I don't know much about clothing um, in terms of a business side of it. I like it and I buy a lot of it, um, but I don't, I don't really know the industry well enough. I have been looking at a jewelry business to invest in, um, and that, that really excites me. So, so who knows? Let's see. Let's see where the next few years go. Um, but it's, it's definitely um, anything in that space. I would look at a luxury, a luxury space. So I'm really interested in that luxury brand and that purchaser and that how a brand is developed in the luxury mindset. Mm. So, um, so let's see. Let's see where that goes. All about luxury. But I see this yeah. already. I don't know if it's part of your brand already. Musgrave Crafted Jewelry and Mus Musgrave Crafted Furniture. Yeah, well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's not something that's there yet, but <laughs> no, never say never. Okay. Sounds very, very interesting. <laughs> Simone, any specific quotes that you would like to share with our fellow entrepreneurs that could motivate them or are you not very much a believer in quotes? Um, I do look at quotes. That I, I don't think I've got a big memory to store them, but the one that I always I speak about and that really struck a chord with me was Richard Branson said, if, you, if someone asks you to do something and you don't know how to do it, just say yes and go find out afterwards. And I guess that's, I've pretty much run my whole business on that. You know, I didn't know how to make gin and I really knew very little about gin except how to drink it. But... <laughs> Go learn anything and do anything. So, um, so I think that you know that's definitely something that I live by. Mm -hmm. And yeah, speaking of that wise words of Richard, it sort of reminds me of I think I've read somewhere about your dad that was working off on the one brand after the other um, in your house as you grew up. Um, mm. I think we briefly spoke about that, but that must have had a major, major influence on you as well with lots of wise words from your dad. Yeah, I definitely, you know, watching my dad uh, sort of always being innovative and, and also reinventing businesses as one ended or one was sold, he started another. There's definitely influence there. I think we are very similar as well and we both, don't like rules very well very mm -hmm. much um so, um so i think you know that we have a very entrepreneurial spirit in our home as i was growing up and and watching him and his his sort of ability to adapt and change and create um, was a huge inspiration to me mm.